welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It is impossible to escape AI at the moment. It has been the buzz topic on everyone's lips for 2023. But today, we speak to Michael Osborne, a professor from the University of Oxford, who has specialised in AI for the best part of two decades. We speak to him about where he sees the future going and how he's using AI to help him in his job as a professor. Now, you wrote a landmark paper 10 years ago saying that AI would lead to 47% of job reduction. How close were you in that prediction? Oh, right. Well, firstly, thanks for your identifying our paper as being a landmark. But I, I have to correct you in that what we were talking about was not job replacement. Instead, our topic was the scope of technology to perform tasks that today are done by human workers. And this is quite a subtle point, but it's an important one. So forgive me for kind of diving into it. The first thing to say is that jobs always change. The kind of tasks that we're doing in our jobs today are already quite different from the tasks we're doing 10 years ago. And if you look over even longer horizons, for instance, what doctors do today is completely different to what doctors were doing 100 years ago. The point is, when we were saying that 47% of work might be susceptible to automation, we weren't saying that 47% of workers would become unemployed because work is always changing. And at least in some occupations, we'd expect technology to boost demand to actually result in there being more jobs for those workers. And software engineers might be an example where despite technology becoming more and more capable of doing what software engineers have historically done, there might yet be more software engineers around as a result of the technology stimulating demand for But software. the media undoubtedly gets carried away with predictions and so on and playing the kind of doomsday scenario. What are your broader reflections on that piece from 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah no, it's interesting in that um, 10 years in, we've started to see some real evidence of what we were talking about in 2013. So the recent advances made in large language models and text to image models, I think have borne out some of our thoughts about how work might be transformed as a result of AI. Notably, some of the occupations we'd identified as being most automatable, including fashion models, have now become partly automated. So for instance, there are firms now that will generate digital models for use in your advertising campaigns, but even in that case, it's interesting to dive into the detail. So this hasn't necessarily resulted in unemployment yet for fashion models, because of course, there are some tasks that the AI cannot do. AI can't strut its stuff down the catwalk, for instance. But nonetheless, there might be some sort of, you know, there might be still negative impacts on human fashion models. We would in fact expect there to be some sort of loss of earnings for fashion models. Perhaps they're losing some of the income they would previously have earned. Perhaps their jobs become more precarious, less stable. This is the sort of story that we've seen in the past where technology is impacted upon work. Um, for instance, when Uber was introduced to a city, taxi drivers saw their wages cut by about 10%, and of course their jobs became much more precarious. And that's broadly the story that we might expect to see as technology bites into more and more different occupations. Even if the jobs don't disappear, they could become a little bit more fragile and less But of paid. course, the interesting thing about the Uber case study is that private hire vehicle journeys 
actually increased in most of these cities. So it's that exact point of mm. where <laughs> the technology creates more work and, and more jobs. But actually, as you rightly point out, you know, not as stable and not as well paid. So it's this, you know, funny thing that's happening in mm. the economy where we're seeing more jobs almost than ever before being created, but it's of that kind of gig economy. <laughs> and you were almost using the, the, that phrase before it, you know, has become part of kind of policy lexicon, I suppose. And what do you see as happening in the next five to 10 years? Well, I mean, just extrapolating from technologies that have already been deployed, in particular, the large language models we've already discussed, it's not too difficult to imagine quite broad impacts on employment. So large language models like OpenAI's ChatGPT, powered by GPT-4, a really quite interesting piece of tech in that so much work today revolves around the production and consumption of digital text. I mean, for instance, my own job as an academic involves the writing of research grant proposals, recommendation letters, marking exams, you know, essays and that kind of thing. And a lot of this can be done at least to some degree by a large language model. So um, I don't think my job is unique in this respect. I think there are many jobs, particularly in white-collar occupations, that do involve just the production and consumption of digital text, and large language models could be quite a big deal there. Already people are using large language models to do copywriting and advertising, and it's not too difficult to imagine the impacts there being quite profound and that AI scales better than human copywriters. You can use AI to produce much more copy and even more tailored copy. You can prompt the large language model with the social media input output of a given user and have the model produce the marketing copy that is a best match for that user's interests that is going to be most persuasive for them. So I guess looking ahead, I'd expect that at least there's a chance that a very large number of occupations might feel the impact of AI. And even if those jobs are not made redundant, there could be some degree of immiseration, that kind of enhanced precarity and loss of wages. Yeah, it's interesting you thought about how it impacts your job, um, an AI professor being concerned about the <laughs> AI side of it. But this is where it feels different this time in terms of the conversation. You know, previously, AI automation, all the way back to kind of like the Luddite era, was the idea of getting rid of basic and repetitive tasks that were largely going to impact the blue collar workforce. Now there is a realization that actually this time it feels different and it could impact on the white collar workforce much more. I think that's right, if only to a degree, in that large language models are clearly capable of doing quite high skilled work. And so we would indeed expect to see some impacts on white collar occupations. But I said only to a degree because I think, um, you know, my experience at least of using large language models is that their output is quite bland. It's quite average in a sense, which means that I wouldn't really expect them to be able to write coherent scientific papers of any great creativity, for instance. I wouldn't trust them to write an entire grant proposal. Instead, they're best thought of as a replacement for the more tedious routine parts of white collar work. So in that, perhaps they might substitute for entry level jobs in the professions in white collar occupations. 
um, while leaving the kind of higher skilled parts of the occupations um, around. But that in itself could be quite harmful. It could mean that the ladder is sort of pulled up behind the senior partners and so on in the professions and removes the traditional entry-level roles that would train you up, would give you some routine work to allow you to amass the skills needed to um, get promoted. So how the professions and other white-collar occupations manage that transition, I will be interested to see. And so what's the difference this time in terms of the white-collar versus blue-collar workforces? Well, the first thing to say is that we've never been in a position with AI where things have been changing so rapidly and have had impact so broadly. So ChatGPT, for instance, the product from OpenAI, had achieved a user base of 100 million in its first three months, faster than any other consumer application, faster than TikTok, which took about nine or 10 months. So the scale and pace of change is faster than ever before. And so it's not unreasonable to think that the pace and scale of impacts might be more severe than before. And that could include the incursion of AI into traditionally white-collar professional occupations. So for instance, large language models are able to produce text that's a good simulacrum of the text that might be produced by many professionals today working on routine tasks like the preparation of grant proposals, for instance. But I will say that I don't expect white-collar occupations to be completely removed in that these language models today still produce text that is largely quite bland, that is average. So instead, the more realistic prospect, I think, is that they might be used to supplant the work of entry-level occupations within the professions. And you saw BT recently announce the reduction in workforce of 55,000 people over the next uh, decade or so you know that that is that is huge that's almost half their workforce it can be quite frightening talk to me about the history of job titles it's hard to track job titles over long periods of time in that jobs change a lot so if you look at ONET which is the US Bureau of Labor Statistics you know central initiative in tracking statistics about jobs over time Every few years, they have to completely relabel and map old jobs onto new and recategorize because things do change quite a lot and it's difficult to keep track of. So it's absolutely true that while job titles are relatively persistent, um, the nature of work changes. Because one of the interesting things I, I think about this is like website developer was a job that didn't exist 20 years ago, right? But then... 10 years ago, you know, it became in demand. And now the interesting side of it is that actually a website developer is not that, not as important as it was. And it's just a real interesting microcosm that a lot of people can see of just how a job can have like quite a rapid rise. I think it's one of the areas that mm. government mm. really struggles in because, you know, government is a pretty slow moving beast and is, is going to find it even harder to keep up with the changing nature of these job mm. titles. No, exactly right. And web developers is an excellent uh, example. Thanks for raising it. A few years ago, we wrote a paper titled The Future of Skills, which looked at which skills might be most in demand in the future. And um, TLDR, the skills were kind of what you'd expect, advanced cognitive skills like 
the ability to be creative and to be social in various ways. But one interesting thing that also came out of that study was that we found that almost all occupations, even if they were likely to be impacted by AI and see some reduction in demand as a result of other trends in labor markets, almost all occupations could move to another occupation that would be high demand with relatively small changes to their current skill mix. So just as you said, web developers have a very transferable suite of skills. And even if they're losing work as web developers, they might be able to move into other software engineering applications. And I think that's true of many different occupations that might be impacted in the next 10 years. Even if that occupation dims in potential, there'll be others around it to which workers can move. What were the other skills that were recommended in that piece about sort of being high-end in-demand skills? Well, so as I mentioned, creativity is important because we saw AI as a means of augmenting creativity rather than replacing it. We saw the ability to think out of the box about how you can use AI, for instance, was likely to become only ever more important. We also thought that um, systems thinking was likely to be very important. Again, recognizing that there's going to be a lot of reorganization of work, the ability to think about entire systems, the combination of human workers and technologies is likely to become only ever more important. And we also saw the importance of working with people. So things like understanding um, your employees, monitoring their performance and responding appropriately is likely to be broadly applicable across um, many different occupations. But I should also say that we identified that required skills differed quite a lot between different occupations. So it's not there's a single set of skills which suits everyone. Instead, different occupations should be emphasizing skills that are most relevant to their particular futures. Yeah, well, it's a question I get a lot when I go into schools and universities is, yeah, well, what should I be studying to kind of future-proof myself? And it's like, well, it's, it's not, I'm, I'm afraid it's not that simple. It depends on who you are and what you like doing. Um, but the the systems thinking is interesting because that's the sort of job of the future that's kind of being created. I mean, it's like, almost like human organization, right? Like, is, is that a correct interpretation of that? Exactly right. Systems thinking is speaking to the need to understand systems so that they can be redesigned. And, um, you know, how work is produced is an excellent example, uh, particularly in the age of AI, how understanding full end-to-end process that produces something of value is important to understand when you're re-engineering it. Thinking about our podcast production schedule, <laughs> some sort of systems thinking at some stage. It's uh, yeah, no, it's, it's it's really interesting. What about your job when you do something like that? How do you go with like a hypothesis of something, and and how do you go about? There's obviously interviews that you do, but what's the kind of process for pulling a report together like that? Like the future yeah. of skills report. Well, um, the approach we took for that was to try and bring together as broad a range of expertise as was possible. And I think that's particularly important when it comes to thinking about the future of work in that, of course, while most of our conversation today has been technologically focused, thinking about AI, there's a lot more at play in real labor markets. And the demographic transition is one thing that's worth mentioning, the fact that workers are aging. We're seeing changing patterns of trade, lots and lots of things going on. So we tried to bring experts together who had 
expertises across that range of important factors so that we weren't missing anything. We weren't being overly narrow. And the demographics is really interesting, right? Because the workforce is going to get older. Like that's just what's happening. And one of the challenges when you get older is not being able to do as much physical work um, and so on. How is that going to impact the workforce? You know, how's that going to change the nature of, of what we do? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question and one I talk quite a lot about um, in Japan, in that, of course, Japan is a little further ahead in this demographic transition, even than some European countries. And so the Japanese discourse is very focused on how technology might help to support the country through this period of demographic transition. And the sorts of things that we're seeing there Firstly, AI used to help support workers to work for longer, which I think makes a lot of sense. For instance, um, during the pandemic, we've realized that we can do a lot of things remotely. We can use technology like Riverside that we're using today to have a conversation that historically we would have had in person. And these kind of remote working technologies allow workers who are getting a bit too old to undertake a strenuous daily commute to continue to contribute to their workplaces, which I think is all to the good. I think AI is also really helpful in monitoring long-term health problems, which of course become more common as we age, in that I wear an Apple Watch, for instance, which records my heart rate and blood oxygen and that kind of thing. And um, similar wearable devices can be used to flag up any signs of imminent crashes in chronic health conditions, which I think is really important in keeping on top of some of the things that plague older workers' lives. That's really interesting. Yes, sorry. My mind's zipping all over the place. Some of that could be really impactful in terms of like having a positive impact on the world. What are the timelines that you're looking at? When are we going to start seeing some sort of shifts happening in terms of inevitably the last six months has been huge? But what's coming down the track in the next couple of years? Well, unfortunately, it's uh, never been more difficult to forecast because so much has been happening. So much has been changing so rapidly. And as I was saying, AI is now in the hands of so many people, hundreds of millions worldwide, all using it to do creative and wonderful things that it's difficult for any one person to say conclusively what the end result for the world is going to be. I think we're in a you know, really frothy period of change. But... But there won't be many um, more people. Asked, I was going to say, Mike, like, I agree on the conclusive point, but there won't be many better people positioned to have a go at it than you. Well, I, I'm not sure about that, but I will give it a go. So, um, you know, I, I think um, one thing we've seen with large language models is that there are sort of rapid periods of transition possible. That is, there are kind of phase changes that we go through. And um, I'd expect that we might now have a period of sort of steadiness after the introduction of GPT-4 and people having um, woken up to the things that can be done with large language models. I wouldn't be surprised if things kind of slowed down for a while as the impact of that technology um, is absorbed. But that's not to say that there won't be similar kind of step changes coming ahead as new forms of technology are introduced. So, um, Looking ahead, I would expect there to be this kind of jerky progression where some occupations see rapid change while others seem relatively stable only for a few months or years down the line, other occupations trying to go into that same period of change. 
But I think that we are talking probably years, um, more than months, for there to be dramatic change in any given occupation because there are still a lot of steadying forces in real labour markets, as you well know. Firstly, these AIs still have many flaws. What we're seeing with large language models today are the kind of highlights promoted on social media and in marketing copy from OpenAI. Of course, they still do have many deficiencies as well. Large language models don't have the same deep understanding of the world that a trained professional will, and that will stop them doing a lot of the work that's needed to succeed in any given occupation. Instead, the way that these models will be used is as kind of an augmentation of human work for at least the foreseeable future. That is, occupations will be reorganizing around the true capabilities of these models and trying to accommodate their deficiencies in a way that does take some time. This sort of process of rethinking how work is done does require a lot of um, innovation on behalf of firms and individual workers in order to get the best out of the, the AI. So I think, um, as I say, there will be a lot of change, but it's likely to quite limited in scope over any small time period over a space of months, but that many um, occupations might be affected over a time scale of years. And what's your job as a professor when it comes to this? And, and what does the Oxford Martin School do as well? I'm obviously uh, an enthusiast for AI. I've been devoting my career to it for the last 16, 17 years. And so I'm, I'm really excited about um, these new developments. I've been using large language models to try and enhance a lot of my work. I've mentioned already that I've been using large language models to help me write grant proposals, which it is excellent. It is really very helpful in producing the kind of um, routine text needed to fill out a grant proposal. And I hope in good time this might actually change the way that grants are written and assessed, because I think reviewers are also going to be using large language models to process the text that we're producing as grant authors. And hopefully it'll show up the real inefficiencies in the process, that it's just kind of pointless that we're, you know, producing text with ChatGPT only to be read by ChatGPT. And hopefully we'll think up better ways to allocate funding in future. I've also been using large language models to produce routine emails and recommendation letters, where again, I think there's a lot of inefficiency today that might hopefully be addressed once people think about the capacity of these models. And I've also been encouraging my students to think about how they might be using large language models. For instance, my students, as we speak, are revising for their exams. Um, I teach students in engineering science, where of course they're not really producing essays, where they're you know, in subjects where essays are the main deal, the impacts might be even more severe. Instead, I'm asking them to type their questions into ChatGPT to ask ChatGPT to explain some piece of engineering to them, and then to very carefully study its answers, because I've been emphasizing to my students that ChatGPT is not 100% reliable. It is prone to hallucinations, to coming up with things that are false but difficult to spot. But actually, I think it's quite useful for my students to be doing that in-depth, careful examination of its process of reasoning to try and spot where those subtle flaws might be. And yet, nonetheless, its answers do kind of point you in the right direction. They'll flag up the sort of literatures you should be examining. So I think there is something very useful there for students today. How accurate do you think the expression is that you know these 
large language models are to English what the calculator was to maths? Well, I don't think that's quite right in that the calculator is a very reliable piece of technology. So it does its limited job very well, but doesn't do most of what we need to do in maths at all. So your calculator can't prove anything for you, to give just one example. And it's of limited use in analyzing real-world engineering problems where most of the maths involved is in framing the problem in the right way, setting it up in maths that you might then um, be able to use a calculator to assist you with. Whereas large language models are quite a different beast in that they are much broader than a calculator. Like I can ask ChatGPT to do almost anything that I do today. I can ask it to write an entire grant proposal. I can ask it to write a scientific paper. But the reason I don't use ChatGPT in that way and that is that it's not very reliable. So if I were to ask it to produce an entire grant proposal, it would produce stuff that was superficially plausible but lacked deep understanding. So instead, I use it only in a very heavily supervised way where I put a lot of effort into framing my prompts to ensure that it's filling in neatly defined little boxes for me. So um, the analogy there, I think, goes some of the way to understanding the role of language models. Certainly, they are a means of doing text-based work in the way that calculators were a way of doing numbers-based work. But where calculators are narrow and reliable, language models are very broad but unreliable. Okay, that is a good counter to that point, which is it's just a line that I've heard a lot. So it's uh, really interesting to get your your insight on that. And and what are the tools that you're using in AI? You know, you can't log on social media at the moment without sort of getting an entire sort of recommendation list of all these things. But as an AI professor, what are you using to make your life more productive? Right. Well, certainly I use ChatGPT and other large language models, as we've discussed already. I'm quite torn on the text-to-image models um, in that I think um, Stable Diffusion, MidJourney, DALI 2 are absolutely astounding. And, um, you know, I've been playing a lot with them, but um, I'm also quite sensitive to the concerns that have been raised about these models by artists in that I think there are legitimate concerns about these text-to-image models having been trained in a non-consensual way. I think artists have a right to understand the ways in which the images that they've produced have contributed to the outputs of these models. And so until those kinds of issues are kind of hashed out, until we've had a broad societal discussion about whether or not uh, text-to-image models are actually theft. They're actually, you know, infringing upon the rights of artists. I'm a bit uncomfortable using them. And so, um, you know, I've essentially committed to not posting any more illustrations or simulacra of photos that have been produced by these models. So just using it for private experimentation and use at the moment, yeah. Yeah, I, I use it with my kids, for instance. I, I, you know, we make funny pictures, which I think is, you know, uh, interesting but defensible. Uh, yeah, for the kids stuff and the the LLMs as well, like it's really interesting because it can write great stories. I mean, I've used it a few times with that to like right. sum up our weekend and create some images around it. Like it's 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 very powerful, and yeah, you can see where that goes in a few years' time. On the regulatory side, there, what do you think needs to happen? I mean, 
Rishi Sunak this week, sort of seeing Demis Hassabis and, and Sam Altman and others to talk about these issues. What's your instinct on, on where we're heading? Right, well, I think regulation is certainly coming, but today it's been a little bit too slow and too limited, it's fair to say. So, I mean, the current state of play is that essentially AI is regulated only by big tech itself, which is not very satisfactory. <laughs> um, there have been all these really worrying things that big tech have done. Um, you know, these models, for instance, have been released while very much being capable of producing hate speech, which I think is alarming. So, of course, many regulators are now thinking about what can be done about AI and different countries are taking very different approaches. Probably the boldest approach is that that has been adopted by the EU, unsurprisingly, given their previous willingness to, through GDPR, address the use of data, in that the EU is currently crafting its AI Act. And this is a very wide, uh, potentially very impactful piece of legislation. One concern about it is that it's been a bit too slow. So we've been discussing it for some years now. It's still not out. We're hoping it might be out next year. So basically, the entirety of large language models has happened in the time that the AI Act has been being discussed. So, you know, the pace of change in technology is far outstripping the pace of the production of regulation to address it, which is alarming in itself. There are other concerns about the AI Act, concerns that perhaps it's emphasizing too much the role of keeping humans in the loop, that is, um, keeping humans as a kind of supervisor of the decisions made by AI. And so in itself, of course, that is an understandable approach. Um, it makes sense that humans need to oversee decisions made by AI. But the concern is that in practice, what often happens is that an algorithmic AI-driven decision-making process is given to a human to simply rubber stamp. And unless the human and the AI are working much more closely, unless there's much more careful integration of algorithmic decision-making with human oversight, with the AI becoming more interpretable, better understood, and with recourse provided to the people whose lives are actually impacted by these decisions, I don't think we're going to see good outcomes. It's not enough just to assume that there's a human at some stage of the process who is going to take responsibility for everything being legit. That just doesn't work in practice. But I'm glad that the EU is acting so aggressively. And what jobs do you see being created? Because there is, as we started out when we were chatting, a danger that it all becomes fear-mongering and lots of jobs being lost, etc. But what jobs do you see being created as a result of the advances in AI? Yeah, so it's an important question because, of course, I don't think AI will just be replacing jobs. You're absolutely right that it will be creating jobs as well. I think the first thing that will happen, the most important thing that will happen, is that AI will stimulate demand for existing occupations. So, you know, we can talk about new occupations like prompt engineers, but history teaches us that entirely new job titles take a long time to become mass employers. And, you know, in the last 10 years, we've seen talk about um, social media interns or data scientists as being new types of jobs, but they've remained relatively niche. These haven't been big job creators to date. So instead, what we'll see is new job creation in existing occupations like software engineers. I think software engineers are likely to see only 
further demand as the cost of producing software comes uh, ever lower. So I'd expect at least for the next few years, software engineering is still a good occupation to enter, despite the occupation potentially being transformed by the introduction of these new models. How did you get interested in this space, Michael? I entered AI in 2006 by virtue of having read far too many science fiction novels as a kid, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but I got interested in the impacts of work after being approached by my friend and colleague, Carl Frey, an economist yeah. who was interested in speaking to technical experts about these technological changes and what they might mean for labor more broadly. And it must feel like you're having a kind of real moment, right? You know, you've been working on this for almost two decades now, and now it's everywhere. So AI is definitely having a moment. And as I mentioned before, ChatGPT has reached more people than not just any AI previously, but any consumer application before. So more and more people are thinking about how AI might be used to do their work to also enhance their pleasure to you know plan their trips more effectively for instance the world is really waking up to the potential of ai and certainly it's realizing that ai can be used to do things that are helpful that are interesting but at the same time the world is waking up to the harms that ai might deliver and we've been speaking a lot about potential economic harms with ai substituting for work immiserating workers but others are also thinking about, as we mentioned, AI is a form of theft of creative work and AI is a means of um, promoting biased or um, actually erroneous information that um, AI might serve quite a damaging role as propaganda bots in our democracies. And that could be a whole new podcast that we should record at some stage, but very important, like with both the US and UK general elections taking place over the next 18 months. Something that we may get you back on the podcast to talk about. See, see if we our conversation can be automated by then. The two final questions that we ask everyone is pass the mic to an interesting entrepreneur or another interesting thought leader that we could speak to about some of the issues that we've talked about. It could be Carl that you just mentioned. Or, uh, and, and sorry, I should say, what's one piece of reading for people that want to learn a bit more about AI? Well, firstly, on the topic of who else you should invite on, I would absolutely recommend um, my friend and collaborator, Carl Frey, who has many interesting things to say, not just about the future of work, but about innovation more broadly and how it impacts on our economies. I have many other colleagues in the university who I think would make excellent guests. Teresa Velez, I think would be a superb guest. Yeah. I think um, Gilly Ledenverter, if you hadn't spoken to Gilly already, has many interesting things to say about the gig economy. And I'll leave it there because there are you know, far too many people, I think, who would be really interesting guests. They'll probably end up recommending some, uh, some other people as well. But yes, that would be, uh, they would be great. And, and what's a piece of content that you found particularly good on, on AI? It could be a YouTube video, podcast, book. Well, um, it's an oldie but a goodie. So it, it's fairly technical. Yeah. Um, it's called The Measure of All Minds by Jose uh, Hernandez Arello, Array. in that what we're doing with AI is attempting to bottle something we don't really understand very well about ourselves, intelligence. And, um, you know, the impact of that could be potentially huge, as we've discussed, but, you know, exactly how the impact will play out will depend on a much better understanding of what intelligence really is and um, 
this book is better than anything else I've read it trying to discuss the nature of intelligence both in humans and in machines and trying to you know pick apart the two so um if, if you want to get a sort of do a deep dive on what intelligence is and what it might mean if we're able to automate it you could do a lot worse than reading Fantastic. this book. brilliant that has been as i knew it would be michael a brilliant uh interview and we'd love to get you on again at some stage because this space is changing so quickly and is so interesting and you have so much experience in it you know um it's been great to have you on thanks michael no well you're far too kind and yeah i've really enjoyed our conversation i'm certainly happy to come back on sometime thanks Jimmy. thanks for listening to jimmy's jobs of the future we've come a long way since our first episode when i started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.